A number of years ago, I found myself in a point of transition. Now, to be clear, this was before my ordination to the priesthood, and this was, in fact, during my seminary education, that I found myself nestled in, in the halfway point, that I just finished my philosophical studies, and I was ready to enter the School of Theology with my classmates as well. And as we did so, we were in the summer months, and we started to approach, and then we started to receive all of the materials we needed, and one of those was a class schedule. And the classes were very fundamental. They were things that we needed to know right up front. They started with the sacraments, they started fundamental theology, and all of the things that we expected. But there was one that seemed kind of odd, and it was a class called Triune God. Now, to be clear, many of us knew about the Trinity already. We knew that we have one God that's in three persons. We knew all about this. We wondered how in the world could we spend an entire semester talking about the Trinity? Well, as the semester went on, it became very clear how could we not? It's just such a big concept. It's such a lofty piece of theology, and yet it's something that seems like it's just somewhat of a piece of trivia, at least in our day and age, and even in our everyday experience. But is there more to the life of the Trinity? Why is the church having us celebrate this mystery today? What is it encouraging us to do as we contemplate the mystery of the Trinity? To start to answer that question, we need to go back to the book of Exodus. So we hear Moses and this particular encounter that he has with God, that he's been instructed to go up on Mount Sinai, that place of encounter with the Lord. And he goes and he takes the two stone tablets with him. And he goes to the very top, and as he reaches the top, we hear that the Lord comes down to meet him in cloud. And then we hear that they start a dialogue. Then Moses starts off and just simply says the name of the Lord, our God, Lord. And then the Lord responds, that he passes him by and he says, The Lord, the, go the Lord, the Lord, rich in mercy and gra graciousness, and he's slow to anger and abounding in kindness. And all of these different attributes that we hear about the Lord, all of those different things that are being pronounced, that it's not just enough for the Lord to repeat his name, but he wants to start to reveal more of who he is to Moses at that time. And even as he's going through his different attributes, his graciousness, his mercy, his slowness to anger, all of these things, they reveal to Moses just a little bit more about who God is. But then Moses hears this and he starts to ask questions. Because, in fact, he wants to, if he finds favor with God, ask these things. That he knows that the Israelite nation is a very stiff-necked people. They're very stubborn. They're very slow to listen and observe what the Lord is telling them. And yet he knows that they need his mercy. That they've been in wickedness. They've been in sin. And yet they want to return to the Lord. And so the third part of this dialogue is Moses reaching back out to God. Because he knows that the Lord is wanting to stay with them. He asks him to stay with them and to continue to return. So he's asking for this particular relationship where the Lord is responding to his people and his people respond as well. And so as this dialogue progresses, it becomes very clear that the Lord wants to reach out to his people and that he does want to extend his kindness. Even as he's rich in mercy, that he's slow to anger, all of these different things, that Moses capitalizes on those and he asks them for the Israelite nation. We move on for a moment and we hear from St. Paul in his second letter to the Corinthians. 
we know how St. Paul is always speaking about the Lord and especially about the Jesus Christ and what he's done. How he came, how he taught, how he suffered, how he died, and then how he rose again that these are all part and parcel of what Paul is always speaking about, and they're really part of his theology and his wheelhouse. And yet, as he speaks about all of these things, it seems like he takes a bit of a turn here and goes somewhere else. That he tells them to mend with one another. He tells them to encourage one another, to agree with one another, to live in peace, and then the God of love and peace will be with them. It seems like he's kind of gone off the edge and he's gone into a different tangent because he's speaking about relationships and not just relationships in a vague way, but interpersonal relationships, human being to human being. That he's really wanting them to look and to assess how they're interacting with one another. And it's a special message for the church in Corinth at that time because it was a particular moment of struggle. And yet, notice what he reveals that those relationships in some way manifest their relationship with the Lord, their God. So he's trying to get them and really encourage them forward to consider how their relationships need to be founded upon rock and how they need to be focused upon so that they can indeed focus on the Lord, their God, in all love and all peace as well. But then at the very end of this, we hear about this benediction, this blessing that Paul gives them in a Trinitarian way. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Likely you recognize that, that many times we begin Mass that very way. And yet, even at this early point in time, as Paul is just there in the midst of the apostles, they already have an understanding about God as he exists in the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. So they've already got this understanding that there are the three persons, even though the theology and the doctrine about it may not be very well developed just yet, they've got the preliminary idea, and that's what matters. Then finally we arrive at the Gospel according to John. In this Gospel, we recognize this first verse very well. Most likely all of us have heard it at length. God so loved the world that he gave his only Son so that whoever believed in him might not perish, but might have eternal life. It may not seem it, but this verse, it encapsulates the entirety of Scripture. Not just the Gospels, not just the New Testament, but the entirety of the Bible. Because, in fact, the entire Bible is a love story. It tells us about the ways that God loved his, own, his people so much that he prepared the way for his Son. How he sent his Son, and that anyone who believes in him might not perish, might not suffer eternal death, but might have eternal life, and might have life in the halls of heaven. That it's all right here in this simple verse. But he continues on and he develops this theme because John is very aware that Jesus is sometimes preaching messages that are hard to hear. That Jesus goes out and he challenges the status quo so often that he wants to make it very clear and abundantly crystal clear even that the Lord did not come to condemn the world. He came to save it. He came to give it life. He wanted to see it restored to its original holiness and that original state of beatitude. That he wanted to see that happen yet again. And so anyone who believes in the name of Jesus, anyone who follows his directions and follows what he has said, that they can have eternal life. But those that don't have made their choice. But nonetheless, it's a beautiful message to behold because it does encapsulate all of scriptures. That it shows the love of God for his people and the ways that he wants to continue to bring them back, to restore them, and to do that through Jesus Christ specifically. 
But all of these three readings, they seem to kind of go on different points, that they don't really seem related, at least on the surface. How are we to understand that, especially in the context of this Mass, where we are celebrating the solemnity of the Most Holy Trinity? Well, the way to do it is this. Because each of these readings focus upon relationship, and relationship in different ways. That they focus on the ways that we are built for communion ourselves, and even God himself, in the very beginning, even before the entire existence of all creation, was designed for communion himself because he's always existed as those three persons in the one Godhead. He's always existed as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. But there's more. Because imagine, he could have been happy that way for all of eternity, but he didn't want to do that. Instead, he elected to reach out to all of humanity because he wanted to love something more than just himself. And so he reaches out, he creates all of humanity, and he loves them so much that even when they falter, even when all of humanity has gone astray, he sends his son to go and to fix, to repair what has been broken. And that's the reality of what we see. The first thing that we should consider for Trinity Sunday, that as the Lord exists, as this communion of persons, as he exists under the one Godhead, he wants to draw us into that relationship as well. That he wants us to be in relationship with him. That the Gospel of John, in this very beginning, in this simple verse of John 3.16, it reminds us that he wants to be in that relationship with us, so he reaches out to restore us to that relationship. And notice the way that this is preached. It's not just something of condemnation, and it's never meant to be a message of condemnation. But if the Lord reaches out to his people in love, then indeed he reaches out because he wants to save them, not because he wants to condemn them. So many times religion gets kind of tossed to the side, or it even gets accused of being very condemnation or very negative of like being a source of condemnation or being a source of oppression. Because so many times different people and different messengers and different speakers get it wrong. Because they feel like our God is simply making us follow rules and follow regulations and do all of these things. But if God is the Trinity, if God is in relationship with us and he desires that relationship, I dare say this is correct, that he's not a God of condemnation. Even if so many religious sort of sects or even sort of divisions might get it wrong, nonetheless, there's this idea that our God is a God of love. He's looking for that relationship, not just with us corporately, but with each and every one of us individually, that the Trinity manifests that very clearly. So our Lord wants to be in relationship with us, but it also follows that we reciprocate. Because the Lord's not going to beat us into submission. He's not going to call us into that relationship, but he's going to give us the freedom to do as we desire. But notice what Moses does with that freedom in the first reading, that he enters into relationship with his God. That he sees this opportunity, that the Lord is a Lord of mercy, of graciousness, of compassion, that's slow to anger and all of these things, and he recognizes that but he recognizes that he has an opportunity for the entire Israelite nation, that he wants to draw them into relationship with God. He sees that invitation that's there, and he wants to reciprocate that, to extend his hand back to the Lord, his God, on behalf of the entire people. And so we've had the first two steps, God in relationship with his people, and then we in relationship with our God. And that we have to choose that. We have to choose to read scriptures. We have to choose to pray. We have to choose to receive the sacraments so that we can receive the Lord our God and receive the ways that he is extending his hand to us. 
He's not going to force us into relationship, but we have to enter into it freely. But then the final point, and the one that St. Paul sort of alliterates so well, because it's that point that we are designed for relationship with our Lord and with our God. Yes, that is important. We're also designed for relationship with each other. And we're designed for communion with one another. Because we as human beings are social beings, that it lies within the fabric of our hearts to be in communication, to be in sociality, to be in communion with one another. That in fact it lies to the very nature of our being that we want to do just that. But it also manifests in a very real way the ways that we are in relationship with God our Father. Much like we see the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit and the ways that they are in communion with one another, we are designed to be in communion with the Lord our God in the Trinity, but also in relationship with one another. But I dare say that's probably one of the most difficult points to behold. Because whenever we hear that, St. Paul is speaking, he wants us to all be a source of encouragement, of agreeableness, of peace. But look at our world today. Look at how much division there is. Look at how much conflict. Look at how many different camps we can be separated into. We don't have to go very far. We can just click onto our smartphones and realize just how easy it is to be divisive, to be a people that are largely blown and scattered apart. But are we called to be that way? My brothers and sisters, if the Trinity is any indication, I dare say we're not. Because, in fact, the Trinity shows us that communion, that relationship that exists between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And it shows us, in a very real way, how the Lord our God wants to enter in a relationship with us. But how about we with one another? And it's not just those relationships that are easy. It's the relationships that are very difficult. Because if it were just the relationships that were easy, we might have that down pat. All of our friends, all of our family members, all of those that we choose to be in relationship with. But that's not enough. Because if Mother Teresa is to be believed, we love God as much as the person that we love the least. Do you have communion with that person? Do you have communion with that coworker that makes life very difficult? That friend or that colleague or that family member that is largely on the down and out that you'd rather not associate with? Do you have communion with them as well? Because my brothers and sisters, the Christian life often is not easy. And even in this particular aspect, it's not that easy either. But nonetheless, if we see the ways that God is calling us to be in communion, to be in relationship with one another, then the most vulnerable point that I dare say each and every one of us have to work on are the points where we are the weakest, those relationships that we'd rather not exist, or the ones where we feel like we can't restore. Those are the places that we need to work. Those are the places we need the grace and the life of the Trinity to continue to restore what has been broken and to restore and to unify what has been divided. Because, my brothers and sisters, the Trinity isn't just something for us to know about. The Trinity isn't just something for us to look and say, that's a nice piece of trivia, or to kind of just wander and wrap, try to wrap our heads around. But rather, it's something for us to imitate and emulate. Because the Lord hasn't revealed this to us for naught. But in fact, the Lord wants to be known by us, yes. But he wants us to see his life in the ways that he wants us to imitate that life as well. Not just with him, but with each and every one of our brothers and sisters as well. My brothers and sisters, I heard about that class so long ago, and I studied the triune God, especially as I went through that class my first semester of theology. It's not just something for us to study. It's not just something for us to hear about, but it's something for us to choose to live out each and every day, not just with the Lord our God, but with each and every one of our brothers and sisters. 
May we be filled with that grace that we need to do just that. And may we continue to behold the Trinity and the mysteries that it contains in the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit.